Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Lymphoma and CLL Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Molly Moran, and to begin, she presented two patients from her practice with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The first, a 71-year-old woman diagnosed 10 years ago, and after having received multiple rituximab chemotherapeutic regimens, was referred for evaluation of disease progression. So she comes to us with progressive disease. At the time she comes to us, her white counts only 5-1 platelets are pretty lousy at 39. Performance status is 2 with the standard fatigue, weight loss, fevers, and night sweats. She has a big spleen and some adenopathy, not bulky, not terribly overwhelming, but the performance status and the platelet count are really driving the need for therapy here. So she gets started on oral ibrutinib at 460 milligrams daily. Ibrutinib was just approved this year for the treatment of relapsed chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and it's an oral Bruton's kinase inhibitor. And so it's got a specific target that it affects in its mechanism of action. And because it's an oral inhibitor, they tend to have a bit tighter of side effect profile. So they tend not to lose their hair. They can have a risk of infection, some GI upset initially, some diarrhea. Could you talk a little bit more about sort of the way she appeared when you walked into the room? You know, you said she was performance status too. What her quality of life was like and what her support systems were at that point that you were able to assess? Yeah. So this was a gal who is 71 years old by the time she comes to us and is a retired teacher, has a wonderfully supportive husband who comes with her on all of her appointments and keeps track of everything from lymphocytes to platelets to what she ate and where she went in a big three-ring binder notebook. So we could see very clearly that her performance status had decreased since the second round of chemoimmunotherapy, or the third round, actually, which would have been the second set of fludarabine and rituximab. This is a gal who was heavily active in her church, heavily active in her choir, very much involved in her grandchildren, cooked Sunday dinner every week, was involved in a card club. So outgoing, socially active, who now, to the point that she comes to us, is barely able to participate in Sunday dinner, let alone cook it, has really limited her social actions due to her fatigue, isn't sleeping very well. She's got some serious weight loss and hasn't been feeling so hot for about a good solid four to five months, and thus prompting concern from her husband as well as her local oncologist in thinking that perhaps chemo immunotherapy wasn't going to be the best option for her and that the side effects may prove to be too detrimental. Now, she's only had a couple of infections, so she's relatively stable with regards to her immune system, but she is starting to get more of them. And that tends to be the case when we see patients who are sort of getting closer to needing treatment is that they tend to have quite a bit more infections than they would baseline. What kind of infections do you typically see and what types did she have? Yeah, she kind of presented with the typical infection. She had repeated sinus infections and repeated upper respiratory infections. She had not been supported with immunoglobulins. She had been treated with repeated oral antibiotics off and on. And she actually did end up in the hospital at one point with a pneumonia, which may have contributed to her poor performance status at this gathering. What could you assess in terms of her understanding of the illness, uh, the long-term potential outcomes, and her attitude at that point? 
This is, again, someone who's seen a few rounds of therapy, so she understood the chronicity of it, but was discerned because the quiescent period between treatments had certainly become shorter. She had enjoyed a five-year remission on the early side of therapy and now has gone basically to not having any response to the last round of therapy, but still was able to garner up the toxicities that came with it. So that was disheartening for her. And to realize that the pace of this or the possibilities of treating it had certainly changed up to that point. So I've heard people say that they're hoping that CLL is going to become the new CML in terms of maybe, you know, we're going to be able to control this for long periods of time with some of the new agents that are coming out. And I know she got one that now is approved, I guess, at the point a year and a half ago that you treated her was on a trial, Ibrutinib. Mm -hmm. What -hmm. happened when you started the treatment? So sort of the typical things that happen when you get started on some of these oral inhibitors, particularly ibrutinib, initially her white blood cell count shot up pretty high in the first couple of weeks. And the lymphocytosis is pretty significant as well when you initially start ibrutinib. She had gone from a low starting white count of about 5,000. And after about three to four weeks, her white count was already up to 100 and. 20, 130,000, and it was mostly lymphocytes. Although she did have enough neutrophils that she wasn't considered neutropenic. And interestingly enough, concurrently, as the white count is heading up, so are the platelets. Were her lymph nodes decreasing? Her lymph nodes were indeed decreasing. She didn't have a ton of them to begin with, but certainly after the first three to four weeks, you could see a difference, and she could actually feel a difference personally within the first three weeks of therapy. So felt a little bit more comfortable, was able to eat a little bit better. And it was really interesting in that her performance status sort of improved right out of the start of treatment as well, right out of the gate. She started feeling better. Started feeling better. And like I said, the side effect profile is not too involved. And so she was really able to regain some functionality early on. You know, sometimes it's tough to figure out when symptoms are from a treatment or just from the disease. I mean, she started out PS2, so she was symptomatic from the disease. But do you think there was anything, any symptom, any quality of life issue that the ibrutinib caused in her? Initially, yes, she had some GI distress and some diarrhea that required oral loperamide, but very easily and very well controlled with oral loperamide, and even on almost a prophylactic basis. Certainly, you always have to rule out that these patients don't have infections. You want to make sure that you're not treating, you know, masking up a C. diff or something like that, because she was given some antibiotics prior to her starting her therapy. We also prophylax these guys against HSV and PCP, because she's seen quite a few therapies previously. So she goes on this drug, and she's tolerating it well. She's starting to feel better. And then what happened? Just bring us up to date. So she's a year and a half out. She's had an objective response in that her white count has returned down to about 20,000, and her platelets are now at a normal 150,000. Her performance status is, one, still with some fatigue. She claims that she's not getting any younger, but she's gone back to doing all the things that she loves to do. She just has to schedule them a little better and take a little bit of nap here and there. But the lymphocytosis has remained. She has a bit of an elevation in her lymphocytes. And what we found over the course of studying this drug a bit more is that despite the lymphocytes not returning to normal, patients are still responding. So a resolution of lymphocytosis or a lack of resolution of lymphocytosis does not equate to failure of therapy and that patients who still have lymphocytosis are responding 
What's been her reaction and her husband's reaction to this experience? She comes by herself now because she's feeling that well. And so her husband doesn't always have to attend with her. Both of them frequently comment on how well she feels and how easy the therapy is to take. There's still some precautions that need to be taken, even in the long term, with these medicines, particularly ibrutinib with its risk of bleeding. So she's always aware to call the office and let us know when she's going to have anything that's sort of invasive or question mark invasive and lets us help her sort of sort that out And because the medicine does need to be held for invasive type procedures. What kinds of procedures has she had that you had to hold the medicine for? She had some squamous cell carcinomas and some basal cells removed. And so if they're just going to be frozen off or a simple shaving of a procedure, we don't necessarily hold the medicine for something like that. But when someone's going to undergo a Mohs procedure where you're not sure how invasive or how much it's going to involve, we tend to hold the therapy usually for seven days if it's going to be very invasive, three days if it's not terribly invasive. What about dental procedures? We don't hold it for dental procedures. We don't hold it for bone marrow biopsies. We don't hold it for anything that's considered a minor procedure. What kinds of bleeding has been observed? Have you seen it? I've heard about some stuff in the skin. I don't know. What happens? So initially, there are common to have bruising in the skin. Usually in the subcutaneous tissue, there tends to be some bleeding. But otherwise, we have seen some hematuria, That turned out to be from other issues, but certainly complicated. These were people who had superficial bladder tumors or chronic infections that were treated. Once treated, the bleeding went away. But we have to always think that the ibrutinib leads to allowing it to happen a little bit more frequently. Yeah, I guess people try to avoid using it, the anticoagulants. On the other hand, you hear a case like this where this lady really was at the end of the line and now she has a second life. It's pretty tempting to use it. Have you had any patients on ibrutinib who were anticoagulated, and how did you manage that? So we avoid the use of warfarin. That's one of the contraindications of using ibrutinib. So if someone needs to be on warfarin for long term, we have not had any problems with patients who require Lovenox. And we've actually had patients who were not on the clinical trials who had a deep vein thrombi or some sort of a DVT that required six months of anticoagulation and successfully used anoxaparin as a sub-Q injection and were able to successfully get through that period where they needed to get rid of the clot and the recommended six months of therapy, continue the ibrutinib without interruption, and then after the six months, stop the low molecular weight heparin without any complications. Now, there's also the other oral anticoagulants that are used for atrial fibrillation that are not contraindicated. But if, like I said, if they need to be on warfarin, then this is something we avoid. We choose a different pathway rather than ibrutinib, now that we have another pathway. So, you know, we've done uh, symposia at ONS on oncologic issues, and sometimes we get into this question of burnout and why people are in oncology, what they get out of oncology, what's the positive part of it. And I'd say this lady's a pretty good example of why sometimes it can be really cool to be in oncology. I would agree. The even better part of it is that her story's not unique. Absolutely. And that we've seen some pretty big turnaround in performance status with people regaining their ability to function and enjoy life and just really live life to its fullest. 
So let's talk about your other CLL case, the 88-year-old man who's now been treated for years and now about two months ago started another of the new oral B-cell agents, the PI3 kinase inhibitor Adelalesib combined with rituximab. What's been going on since he got started on this treatment? His counts have improved. His thrombocytopenia has improved. His lymphadenopathy has gone down. His energy level has gone up. He's back to walking his dog every day. He lives in an extended care facility, but it's an assisted living. He's not in a nursing home. He's in his own apartment and gets out and walks around every day. He wasn't able to do that prior to starting on the Idelalisib and was really feeling you know, a bit fatigued, a little more short of breath. This is a gentleman who has some complicating factors in his past medical history, including a mitral valve replacement. He has a pacemaker he has BPH, and he is on long-term warfarin therapy. And so that's what made the idelalisib and the rituximab an appealing option for therapy as opposed to ibrutinib, which is contraindicated with the warfarin. Right, as we were just talking about before. Yeah. What was his white count when you started the adelacibar, and what happened to that? Did he have the same thing that the other patient had? He did have the same thing that the other patients. Not certainly as significant, but certainly it still occurred. His white count when we started was about 15,000, 18,000, and it seems as though his has peaked into about 29,000, 30,000. Again, he's also getting this in combination with rituximab, so we're, you know, sort of eliminating a lot of the lymphocytosis with the rituximab, which he receives every two weeks. And what about his physical exam? Did he have any nodes and did they change? He did. He'd had a lot of cervical nodes and a lot of axillary nodes, and they've all gone down by at least 30% in the first month, and they continue to improve over the course of the second month. His spleen has improved by a reduction of about 30% in that he's having weight gain, improved appetite, and the measurable size of the spleen has improved. I'm just kind of curious, does he feel his lymph nodes and spleen getting smaller himself? He felt his lymph nodes improving and his spleen improving within the first month of therapy. Absolutely. He could tell that he could eat a little bit better and that his shirt collar fit a little bit better wow. and that his energy definitely improved early on. Wow. And can you talk a little bit about what you went through with him, reviewed with him prior to starting this therapy in terms of you know what the potential risks and side effects were? And also maybe talk a little bit about your own experience. Yeah. Initially... One of the concerning side effects is GI distress and diarrhea. And in someone who's older, who may have already baseline problems with hydration, it's important to make sure that they are aware that this could happen, that they need to let us know that they can do over-the-counter interventions, but that certainly every other cause of the diarrhea needs to be ruled out as well. We had a particular gentleman who had significant amounts of diarrhea and was treated presumptively for C. diff. And as cultures were waiting to return and the Cultures came back negative. Long story short, after a colonoscopy, it was found out that the diarrhea was related to the idelalisib and that he had GI inflammation. But none of this was sorted out until he had a huge drop in his performance status, a huge drop in his weight. And so one of the things that we always recommend to patients and patients who are going to be treated either with us or through their local oncologists is that these side effects are addressed sort of in that same systematic way that you would address any other 
side effects and never presume that it's from one cause or another and certainly go through the process of eliminating the causes. And what happened with this man? Did he have any diarrhea? He did initially, and, you know, we did the usual cultures and made sure that everything was negative, and we were able to get him on a regimen of a prophylactic Imodium and does great. He takes some bulky fiber and does very well. He stays very well hydrated. He's compliant with his medication. He takes his doses every day as he's prescribed and has really tolerated the therapy very well. One of the benefits, or it may not be a benefit, but one of the things that makes our job a bit easier is that he's coming in to see us every two weeks for a dose of rituximab, so we get to see him on a regular basis. And you mentioned that he's in an extended care facility. What's his social support systems? He has a son that lives nearby who sees him on a very regular basis, and he has the ability to drive still. So he is somewhat of a popular gent in his community, and he has a full-time caretaker that comes in, cooks and cleans for him. Hmm, Interesting. What's his attitude about, you know, this situation and his life in general? He always says, whenever we're starting treatment or changing treatment in this gentleman, he says he's not ready to go. He's not ready to go, so find something else that works. And so he always had a positive attitude no matter what we were going to recommend for therapy. And he also had, before we got started on this therapy, he had some transfusion requirements, and those have since resolved as well. And so he definitely feels that that's an improvement, is that he's not having to come for transfusions on a regular basis. What kind of work has he done in the past? He owned a pawn shop. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I guess one other issue about Adelissa that I've heard about, I'm just kind of curious in terms of your experience, is liver function abnormalities. Have you seen that? We have indeed. And that can be early on in that patients can have a rise in their ALT, AST early on in the therapy. Most times or frequently you can hold the Adelissa, interrupt the therapy, let the liver counts improve, and then restart either at a lower dose and they tend to do as well and not have a return of their liver enzyme elevations. And sometimes the liver enzymes can get pretty high and, you know, 50 times high and sort of into a panic mode, and then they take that, or 10 times as high anyway, and you take that away and they improve very quickly. They're not really symptomatic from their liver function elevation either. So one other aspect to this case This patient was diagnosed some years ago, but just in the past year, we've seen the approval of a new agent, the type 2 anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody obinutuzumab, which was studied specifically in older patients and those with comorbidities and found to offer a pretty significant advantage over rituximab with chlorambucil. What's your experience with obinutuzumab? We have a lot of experience with obinutuzumab and chlorambucil as a combination. That's something that we use frequently in patients who are a bit older, and we're concerned that they're not going to tolerate traditional chemoimmunotherapies well, or, you know, you worry about the side effect profile, certainly with the purine analogs, and they tend to tolerate the combination of the two, chlorambucil and obinutuzumab, very well. And the initial infusion reactions tend to be with the first dose and then sort of resolve beyond that. So it's a very well-tolerated therapy despite any age of a patient. 
Well, that was what I wanted to ask you about, because what I've heard is, you know, quote, more infusion reactions from rituximab, and I'm curious if that's what you've observed. We have indeed, like I said, in the initial infusion reactions with obinutuzumab, they tend to be in the first one and then not any after that. Anything unusual about the type of infusion reaction that occurs? No, it tends to be typical early in the infusion within the first 30 to 45 minutes, hold the therapy and then treat it with interventions, adding more steroids. We give them steroids ahead of time, which is not something we typically do with rituximab. If you don't know if they're not going to have a reaction, we don't add that on up front. But in obinutuzumab, we treat them for a good 30 to 60 minutes prior to. So let's go on to your next case. So 27-year-old gentleman who was diagnosed with, this is a Hodgkin's disease patient with brentuximab. And he was diagnosed in 2006 with paratracheal mass and was staged at a stage one, typical Hodgkin's disease, and was treated with vincristin, cyclophosphamidoxorubicin, and prednisone for three cycles, followed by local radiation therapy, which would be sort of a typical treatment for stage 1A Hodgkin's disease. He wasn't symptomatic other than he had the lymph node in his neck. He stays in a CR for about a year and has a staging PET scan or a surveillance PET scan that shows some intake intermediastinal mass. It's biopsied and it's recurrent Hodgkin's disease. He gets treated with two cycles of ICE chemotherapy and goes on to have a peripheral stem cell transplant autologous and achieves a CR. After about two years on a surveillance PET scan again, he has increased uptake in some nodes just outside of the mediastinum and gets treated with brentuximab at 1.8 milligrams per kilogram. And he gets this, which is over about 30 minutes, and he gets it every 21 days. He gets typical pre-medications with diphenhydramine and acetafetamine. He gets eight cycles and develops grade two peripheral neuropathy by about the eighth cycle. The dose gets held for a week and the symptoms get better. He gets the ninth cycle and the neuropathy returns and that's where his therapy ends. And he continues to have, now three years later, no avid lesions and remains in a CR and he was recently married and had a baby. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So he presents with a typical age diagnosis, you know, regional, like he's 27, he's in his early 20s when he's diagnosed. So that's sort of a peak in Hodgkin's disease. He's male and, you know, tolerates the initial therapies well, but unfortunately kept relapsing. So when did you get involved with this care? So I got involved with him pre-transplant and then post-transplant. So they go into a different department to get their transplant and then come back out to us. Maybe you can go back to the point at which he was started on the brentuximab vidotin and talk a little bit about what his clinical situation was like at that time, what his life was like, you know, was he working? And he had returned to school, sure. So he was in school. A student, right. yeah. And by this point, when he had this recurrence, which would have been his second recurrence, he was very familiar with his body and what was happening. And so he could tell very early on, even before the PET scan, he had known that he had relapsed. He was starting to feel more tired. His concentration wasn't as hot as it had been previously. He was more readily fatigued. And so it was starting to have some B symptoms. He had some night sweats as well. And so he knew early on. And so his 
mental status was a bit shaken by this point in that he was discouraged, if nothing better. He was saddened and couldn't believe that this was happening again after everything he'd already been through. Right. What did you go through with him in terms of possible side effects or complications from a Brentox of Avidotin? What do you say to patients? So one of the bigger concerns is for the peripheral neuropathy and that it can certainly be dose limiting, which he ended up experiencing down the road. And this is a gentleman who's had exposure to vincristin and transplant. And so he already had some reasons to be concerned. You know, we already have reasons to be concerned about him having a risk of neuropathies. But the upside of using a monoclonal antibody is that the remainder of the side effects are a lot less than what they would be with traditional chemotherapy. So he got to keep his hair. The risk of infection was lower. He only had to come in one day every three weeks to get a dose. So things were easier to go through and better in that regard to tolerate. And he was able to actually maintain a part-time school status through his whole therapy. What's his career aspirations? He wants to be a nurse. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So what kind of a patient was he in terms of wanting to get information? Did he ask you a lot of questions? Was he out there on the web? Was he bringing stuff up to you? Or is he sort of staying out of it? He was definitely looking for information on the web. He wanted to know everything from could he do an allogeneic transplant. He didn't have any siblings, so a matched sibling donor was out. You know, could he do cord blood? Could he go on to any other experimental therapies? What other kind of things were working? And he knew a lot about monoclonal antibody therapy before we even brought it up. So, yeah, I was curious what you said to him or what you say to patients about what type of therapy this is or sort of how it works, because it is, again, a new type of therapy. It's only been around a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic nuts and bolts of things that I tell patients without using any sort of technical terminology is that these are engineered to look for specific proteins. They use your own immune system to recognize and destroy cells. And because of the specific targets that they hit, their side effect profiles tend to be tighter. I guess the one thing about these antibody drug conjugates and the other one we've seen is in breast cancer, HER2 positive disease, TDM1, is that it's delivering chemotherapy. Theoretically, like I've heard the term Trojan horse, you know, just to the tumor cell. On a stealth basis and that the conjugate isn't active when it's out circulating around until it actually attaches onto the monoclonal antibody. And in that way, just the target is hit. And in that regard, there's not much collateral damage. And so we're able to deliver this directly to the tumors rather than all over. And again, using a ball hammer to hang a picture frame rather than a sledgehammer. Hmm, I like that one. That's a new Mm -hmm. one. Good. Okay. (laughs) Always looking for interesting analogies. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what happened as he received this treatment, what you observed in terms of the disease itself, but also, you know, at the same time, what you were seeing in terms of side effects? He did very well with his infusions. He didn't have a whole lot of bulky disease to start with, but he did have some, you know, initially he got the antibody without any pre-medications, but then he did have a little bit of shaking chills 
and a little bit of a fever. And in the initial therapy, the therapy was turned off. That was treated with acetaphetamine, diphenhydramine. He got a little bit of an H2 blocker and a little touch of steroids, but it wasn't a huge infusion reaction. And then just in his subsequent therapies, he was given the pre-medications and he didn't have any further reactions once he was started on just the acetaphetamine and diphenhydramine and was able to tolerate that well. Was, you know, half day in the office with some blood count checks initially in between, but then things remained stable. After about two or three doses, probably closer to four, started to feel quite a bit better in terms of less fatigue. The night sweats went away early on and was feeling well. So, and then what did you observe in terms of as he continued to receive treatment in terms of peripheral neuropathy? Initially, he had a little bit of numbness in the tips of his fingers and the tips of his toes, and it would be resolved by the time he came back to get his next cycle. So within three-week period, it would resolve. And so it was basically a grade one in that it was really just some numbness and tingling. And he was starting to feel so well, I think that he was a bit shy to tell us that he was starting to have symptoms and didn't want to not get the therapy. That's interesting. I've heard about that phenomenon of, you know, cancer patients not telling people, particularly here, they don't tell doctors. I don't know, maybe they tell nurses more, you know, about symptoms just for that reason, that concern. Here he's in kind of a desperate situation. He's responding, but yet now he sees there's a problem. Exactly. They always want to be the best patient. They want to be outstanding. But the thing that I always try to tell patients is that there's a lot of things that I can fix. And if I don't know about them, I can't fix them. And fixing them doesn't necessarily mean taking away their therapy. There are interventions that we can do, certainly in the things of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and any kind of GI upset, mouth sores, even in neuropathies. If we know that you're starting to have neuropathies, if there's dose adjustments to be made, if there's delays in therapy that can help, again, we need to know, and that's what I try to stress to patients, is that we need to know about your side effects. And we want you to respond to therapies. We want you to remain on therapies for as long as you can. But the old saying, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I guess also you have to consider the whole situation. It sounds like in him, he'd gotten a great response and he was kind of plateaued out there when he really Mm -hmm. started to have more problems. What was the state of the neuropathy when you actually decided to stop treatment? So by the time he came in for the what would have been the 10th dose, he had been walking like he had ski boots on. And so that was pretty much the end of him getting any more of this therapy. So was it just sensory? Just sensory neuropathy and more in his feet than in his hands. So at that point, he's really having some problems. You stop the brentuximabidotin. What happened to the neuropathy? So slowly over time, it's continued to improve where his walking ability is almost completely back to normal. But he still has some pain. It still requires some pain medicine for the neuropathy. And we also have him on some B-complexes. So again, I'm thinking about him a couple of years ago. Maybe he would end up with an aloe transplant or some kind of challenging type of treatment. Another reason to be an oncology, I guess, huh? Another reason to be happy that we have the kinder, gentler therapies. And Not more gentle, but kinder therapies, I suppose. So let's finish out with your last patient. Sure. So this is a gentleman. He's currently 68 years old. He presented 
two years ago with neck nodes, some swollen lymphadenopathy. And his primary care physician gave him some antibiotics, which is a standard, you know, treatment for lymphadenopathy in a neck, somebody who's not feeling so well. They get a cycle of antibiotics. There's no improvement. He gets a CAT scan. Yes, there's lymph nodes. Eventually leads to an excisional biopsy that is positive for T-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. He has a PET scan that shows adenopathy sort of throughout the upper part of his neck and chest. Uh, Bone marrow biopsy is also positive for T-cell lymphoma. And initially he gets treated with RCHOP for six cycles, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant and conditioned with BEAM. And he achieves a CR with sort of this chemo-heavy upfront regimen. And about a year and a half later, he starts to notice some lymph nodes, and a biopsy shows that it's recurrent T-cell. He gets started on treatment with romadepsin, days 1, 8, and 15, and then he gets a week off. And by cycle 3, he has an elevation in his liver function, and an ultrasound shows that he has a partial vein thrombus and no acute cholecystitis. After a week, everything starts to get better drug gets restarted, and he goes on to get six cycles total. By the end of the six cycles, he's got peripheral counts that have returned to normal, lymphadenopathy that's gone away, things are PET negative, and then he gets admitted after a few months with some nausea and vomiting and dizziness, presyncopal, and gets better with some IV fluids, and at his last staging in August, shows that he's still in a PR, and his disease is fairly stable and doesn't require other therapy. So he, after heavy chemo immunotherapy, stem cell transplant, he gets the romadepsin and gets a decent response out of it. And I'm curious, when you first met with him at the diagnosis, you know, T-cell lymphoma is very uncommon. How do you explain to patients about what T-cell lymphoma is? What did you explain to him? That it's a rare blood cancer that happens in a very small number of patients, that it's part of the immune system, that it's often harder to treat, it's harder to get it into remission, it's harder to keep it away. And so this is always a tricky situation of diagnosis to try to get them on some treatment. The other hard thing about his diagnosis that came right at the time when he was in the process of trying to sell his business so that he could retire. And then with this uncertainty of a new diagnosis, that really just sort of rattled the structure of his social fabric as well. What kind of work did he do, and what was his social support system? Yeah, he owns a manufacturing plant that does injection plastic moldings, which is contracts through many different areas, different contracts all over the world, but it's located here in the Midwest. He's married to his second wife. His first wife had passed from cancer many years before. He had young adult family, two sons and a daughter, none of which were involved in the business, sort of scattered all about the country. And so the second wife and her family were here. So it was a bit of a difficult scenario for him to think about. He had, you know, remarried after being a widow. And now the first thought in his mind was that he was going to leave a widow. So so he was concerned about his wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the business is on the plate to be sold. But if it didn't happen before he got too sick going through his therapy, would he be able to conduct his business? Would the company still be viable as a selling option if he had to put things on hold? Would he be around to see it sold? So economically, all sorts of things pressing on this poor gentleman who was used to being in quite a bit of control. When you first started to talk to him about this, what did you say to him or what came up in the discussion about the long-term outcomes? 
sort of a big question mark and that the prognosis was you know, dependent on how well he responded to therapy and that the long-term outcomes previously hadn't been so terrific in T-cell lymphomas. His biggest first question was, and his first statement was, I don't have time for this. We're going to have to do this, you know, in six months from now. And unfortunately, that's not really an option when you're working with something like a T-cell lymphoma. What was his situation when you started the Romadepsin? By this point, the company had sold. He was able to get sort of things done initially while he was undergoing the initial CHOP therapy. And as the disease went away, he was able to wrap everything up pretty much with his social situation in terms of getting business all squared down prior to going into the auto stem cell transplant. And so that was a huge relief for him that he could focus on the continuation of feeling better. And what helped was that he was feeling better even during the bouts of the CHOP therapy initially. At the time he got the romadepsin, what was his status in terms of the disease? Where was it present? Was it causing symptoms? What was his state of mind like? So it wasn't causing too many symptoms. He just had presented with left axillary lymph nodes, and his performance status was still zero. So he was feeling well. He wasn't having a great deal of infections. When he initially got started on therapy, he was in a much better state of mind than he was when he was treated the first time. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that having straightened out all of the selling of the business and during his initial therapies and transplant and everything else that was happening, he reconnected on a very intimate level and close level with his three children that had been scattered about the country. Got to spend a lot of time with grandchildren that seemed to be expanding on almost a monthly basis (laughs) and did a lot of sort of reorganizing of priorities and enjoying the time with his, we always tease him and call it his new bride. They've been married for quite some years, but we always call her new bride. And just really sort of realigned priorities. Again, it sounds like maybe he started to see his life differently. Do you think that hanging around people like that gets you to see your life differently? Always, always. I always reflect on my own life and my parents are aging and I try to have these conversations with my parents, which doesn't go so smoothly. My mom is convinced that a a living will or a will and testament is a binding contract and that if she signs one, it goes into effect in 90 days. And so (laughs) she always is fighting tooth and nail to have these discussions. But I think it's important. I think I do it with my siblings and I try to be as open and honest with my patients as well. And something that I tell everyone, whether we expect to cure them or put them into big solid remissions for long periods of time, is having your ducks in a row is never a bad idea. What did you observe in terms of side effects, if any, on romadepsin? What do you normally see and what did you see in him? So he had what we typically see with these patients in that he had a lot of nausea and vomiting early on. And it was treated very well and very easily with just oral antiemetics, no fancy combinations. And he just had to get on something around the clock and did very well. And then he did develop some neuropathy as well. Have you observed fatigue with romadepsin? Not as much as with other therapies. I think 
It's hard to tease out in this particular gentleman, and often with Roma Depson, these are patients that are previously treated. And so, like we talked about earlier, it's hard to sort out the disease versus the treatment as well. Because right. he seemed to have sort of like a peak in a trough. Like initially, he had a lot of fatigue and felt better once he got started on the Roma Depson, but then after a culmination of so many doses, started to feel not so well in terms of fatigue. <laughs> 